My name is John Methvin. I'm the author of Therapy Mammals. And uh, I'm Tom Stern. I'm the author of My Vanishing Twin. Uh, nice to talk to you today, Tom. Um, just for the, the listeners um, who may not be familiar with My Vanishing Twin, it's a, a fantastic book. And if you have not picked this up or you're not familiar with Tom's writing, you have to, you have to try this one out. Um, it's a story of Walter Brom. He goes to the doctor to deal with what he thinks is a tumor, and it turns out that he has uh, something called vanishing twin syndrome, which I'm going to ask Tom about. Uh, he's been carrying around his twin brother for 35 years. Uh, that's the that's the plot. And um, I guess to start off, Tom, I, I actually have been loving this book. And um, the first thing I wanted to ask you about was how much research did you have to do on, on vanishing twin syndrome? Is this something you invented or is this something that you've heavily researched? It's a legit thing. It is a, a real thing. Heavily researched is probably not not quite accurate. Um, I, I had honestly read some articles about it. I, I just sort of happened upon one in particular. And I, I can't even remember. It was some third world country where this man had carried his own twin in his body through his whole life. They had sort of referred to him as having a big pot belly and his friends had always made fun of him. And not until later in his life did it become apparent that, that it was actually his, his twin brother in there. Not that he was actually alive, which is kind of the conceit of, of my vanishing twin, but that it was a, you know, a formed or semi-formed body in there. So vanishing twin syndrome is a, a real thing. And, and typically what happens is there are, are multiple fetuses in the womb during a pregnancy. And at a certain point, one of those... Um, <laughs> fetuses will basically consume the other. And typically, you'll, you'll never hear of it ever again. I mean, most of the time, it goes completely unnoticed, or in some rare instances, it might show up later in life as like a little cyst or something, or, or but people don't realize what it is. And in very, very, very rare cases, that fetus has developed enough or continues to develop enough that there are sort of, in some cases in that cyst, like hair or teeth. And in this really rare instance, um, an actual you know, kind of semi-developed body. So I didn't go too deep into it. I knew of that article. And then I kind of used that to take some poetic license with this concept and kind of build it into the, the book that I made. Uh, yeah, I thought it was, I, I, it, to me, it, it came off as, as well-researched, and or at least h- how you did it, you pulled it off. Because if you can't convince the reader that that's at least a, a plausible um, possibility, then nothing else works. And I, and I, I came away thinking that it was was very believable. That's good. That's good. That's yeah. And and hopefully, so yeah. And I think trying to ground the entire tone of the piece, I think, was a, a goal for me. It, there are certain things happening in it that are um, more, you know, again, sort of taking certain poetic license with, or more exaggerated, but wanting it to be really rooted and grounded in a reality, which I think is also something that in different ways, but but I think is shared with therapy mammals. So um, therapy mammals, just, just so you know, John, because um, we actually haven't even met or spoken before today, but I was at the LA Times Festival of Books and I was talking with the folks at the Rare Bird team. And one of them said, you know, we're putting out this book called Therapy Mammals and I think you need to check it out. And I was like, sure, cool. So I picked up a copy and I read the first 20 pages and then I sent Rare Bird an email and I said, I want to talk to John Methven because uh, <laughs> I think that therapy mammals. So uh, the, the plot of it, it's a really kind of 
dense, convoluted plot in a good way. It's about a, a, a weatherman, basically, who lives in kind of a, a certain type of suburban, somewhat sheltered community who kind of winds up getting involved with this investment scheme and uh, is also simultaneously on some type of medication that's causing him to, or is it causing him to black out and do certain things and act out in certain ways. But at its core, and I, I, I think, and correct me or add and shape that better if I'm not doing it justice, but uh, at its core, one of the things that I was immediately really drawn to is in my estimation, and I guess my question for you is, is this intentional? It, it is a book that is as much literary as it is humor. And it's actually playing with humor in a way that is is very literary. And I feel like oftentimes those things get separated. And I think My Vanishing Twin was trying to walk that balance as well. Do you think of this book as as humorous? You know, I, uh, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think... I try to consider myself a, a comedic writer. I've written for McSweeney's, but far more than I've written for McSweeney's, I've been rejected by McSweeney's. So you start <laughs> thinking, like, maybe, I, maybe I'm not as funny as I think I am. <laughs> but my my one of my first my earlier editors had always not really steered me away from it, but kind of steered me more toward character driven books than uh, satire, just because for the simple fact that it's very very difficult to make a a career and to build a following as a, a satirical writer. So I think it's more, you know, about developing characters instead of just always going for the easy laugh. Yeah. You know, and that's, it, you know, that's a, that's interesting that, that you draw comparisons between the two because I do as well. There's parts in the vanishing twin that I'm, I'm just laughing out loud and I'm rereading them just to kind of enjoy the, the back and forth. And when it comes to characters, you know, Walter Brom is, is a great character. And the reason he's interesting to me, I kind of felt badly about this throughout the book, but I, I found myself taking Walter's side. Not in, not in, not in, right from the beginning when he's in with the doctors deciding what is the ethical way to, to deal with the twin I, I sort of was seeing this whole thing through Walter's point of view, and right up through the book, it never it never really changed for me. And I was surprised about that because Wallace, the brother, the twin, is really a fantastic character throughout. I don't know if you ever read John Irving's Prayer for Owen Meany. Yeah, that's that's just who I had in mind. So that's one of my favorite books of all time. So I really liked Wallace, but I'm still siding with Walter. And my yeah. I was going to ask you about this. What has been your experience with readers? His, 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 I, I would think that everyone just hated Walter. Well, it's interesting. And, and actually, this was unexpected for me as well. So I, I went in, when we published, I had the exact same notion that one of the most in, in writing the book was this feeling that Walter was just too unlikable. And how is anybody going to side with him? And how is anybody going to like him? And what I've actually found is from that the response has been more or less split between the two, where there are people who absolutely side with um, Wallace, and there are people who absolutely side with Walter. And in fact, one of my favorite reviews of the book, just like, a, not even review, but just like an online, somebody, you know, wrote their little reaction to the book somewhere. I think it was on Goodreads or something. And the entire review was, does it make me an asshole that I sided with Walter at the time? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I was like, I'm deeply flattered by that. <laughs> but, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, how I felt. I mean, throughout the thing, you've created this character in Wallace who is is really, I mean, he's the best of, of all of Walter. Everything about him is the best. But, you know, throughout throughout the book, Walter is really this this character that the reader has to fight to love. And, and it works. I mean, I, I still was pulling through for him the entire time. Well, and but and Tom Pistolini would be similar, right? The, the protagonist of Therapy Mammals. He's somebody who <laughs> whose actions are on their surface, deplorable in some cases, criminal in some cases. But he also is somebody who is, I don't know, is tra- maybe trapped is the right word, but trapped in the context of his surroundings and his environments and the value, the value system that is placed on those things. And he almost, at least as I was reading it, kind of comes to an unwitting moment of realization for himself. Did, did you wrestle with that question of the likability of, of Tom? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, most people that even read the jacket cover will be like, oh, this is just awful. This is an awful concept. Because to just to have any person involved in something like this, it really is, you're like, who are these people? Why would I possibly read a book about it? And, you know, the basis the basis of this character was he's an immoral, immoral man on a moral mission. And I think that kind of defines everybody, really, you know. For the most part, I think people try to do the right thing most of the time when they can. And and in his situation, he is trying to live an ethical life as a provider, as a parent. And uh, he just has some really strange ways of doing that. But, and this is to me where, again, this concept of humor is interesting to me because, and I think you mentioned satire, and I always feel like there's a difference between those two things, that satire is a type of humor, but I don't think of therapy mammals necessarily as satirical. I think of it as using humor to kind of unpack these moments that on their surface seem reprehensible or immoral, but use the humor to actually get at this human point of entry to them that makes it really accessible that you know no we don't nobody's really gonna you know beat the crap out of a high school kid in the the bathroom of the school which is how how the book opens (laughs) but but we can understand it and we and we've all had moments where we've thought well you know what i'd really like to do right now is beat the crap out of that kid who is you know potentially going to hurt my kid but I, I feel like you use humor to allow that stuff to exist in a way that it, it is real for the through line of the narrative, but we as the readers aren't thinking, well, I, I'm really condoning doing this by kind of participating with it. Is that, were, were you cognizant of using humor in that way, or is that not really a part of your process to even delineate between those things when you're writing? Yeah, you know, I think these are kind of heavy topics throughout as far as, you know, the tourism business regarding mass shooting sites. This is something that, that you know, we, we sit here talking about this. This could never exist, right? But, you know, the murder culture and death culture throughout the world is really a huge tourism business. It's just not something that we're comfortable with here. And I, I will never be comfortable with that. So I guess how I deal with that and how I process that is, is to try to find, you know, maybe not a a funny way to deal with it because there isn't a funny way. It's a very serious topic, but there has to be 
a different way of looking at it. And I think what you're saying is, you know, in, in the situations where you read it and even situations where I would, I would write it and I would appreciate it. It would come across as, is, you know, humorous. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And there's, there's also, I think a part of the point of view or perspective of the author that can come through when writing is also humorous that has a texture to it or a depth to it that's a little bit different where reading therapy mammals i really thought i mean i was sitting there thinking to myself what does the world look like to this guy like just you know because so much of it is grounded not that i really think you were out there killing anyone but but so much of it is grounded in a detail to the observation that it seemed like well it it, it resonates part of with your perspective or your point of view in general, does the, does the world look like the, the world of therapy mammals to you? Yeah, parts of it, absolutely. What uh, parts of it? Well, it, as far as um, like gun culture, when, when there's a shooting in this country, the first thing that happens is the stocks of, of gun makers go through the roof. And all of, you know, there's people that own those stocks, right? So they're benefiting off of that. When we have, when we invest in various morally gray areas, when we invest our stocks in our 401ks, we're benefiting off of this, right? So I think there's a little bit of truth in that. As far as, you know, other parts of the world that therapy mammals occupies, yeah, I think there's a, you know, he lives on a man-made island. I think there's a tendency for people and myself included to sort of live within the confines of, of what's comfortable to you and kind of forget about the rest of the world. No, absolutely. And so did, so where did that, where did therapy mammals start for you? It, it was, and, and it is, it's funny that you mentioned too, that you orient yourself towards the work in terms of character, because I really, as I was reading, it was really kind of vacillating between thinking of it almost more as a character study on some levels, it is plot-based as well, and, it, and, it, and it's nicely structured in that regard. But there are a lot of characters, and you go deep with a lot of the characters. Is that where this started, is that character of Tom Pestolini, the weatherman? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's hard, and it's it's you probably have, have experienced that. It's difficult to work with a lot of characters. And usually, I guess, in all my books, it starts off with you know, a, a respectable amount of characters. And then you slowly realize I got to kill some of these people right now before we get going. <laughs> and then as you, as you write more and more, you're getting more characters and it's hard to keep track of them all. One of the things about Tom Pistolini that I wanted to get back to my vanishing twin about is I struggled with the likability of this character in earlier drafts. And I almost made him the woman. I almost changed his gender early on. And I'm thinking about Walter and wondering if if he would be more likable to people if he was a, a woman. He could be. I mean, it's interesting. I think that he probably, as a male character, gets certain leeway that he wouldn't as a female character. Not that that's right, but that he can be an asshole in ways that probably wouldn't be as readily accepted if that were flipped. So that's an interesting thought or observation. And, and I definitely, I mean, Walter was definitely for, for my vanishing twin was, I think the starting point for me as well. I typically enter through character and I know that I'd started writing these pages about Walter and about um, his girlfriend and their relationship. And it became apparent to me that he was somebody who had reached a point of, 
total stasis as an individual. And I think what started to become interesting to me was this question of what would it take to to shake somebody out of that deep a level of stasis? Um, and then, I, you know, however such things work, why such ideas come to us, I don't know. But, you know, then for me, it was kind of, well, what if he was pregnant with his own twin brother? And, <laughs> and uh, from there, it was a question of, yeah, that's the right idea. I don't know why. And I need to figure this out. And that kind of is, is you know, where it un- unfurled from there. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I'm always as, I'm not an outliner. I never have been. I have this fantasy in my mind that people who outline their work get it done in like three, uh, a quarter of the time that I do. And it's easy and refreshing, which I know is total bullshit, but that's what I have in my mind. Are you, are you an outliner? Cause with all those characters, I feel like you'd have to at least map out those character journeys or no. You know, that's it, interesting because I was going to ask you about about how you did that, but I guess what I do is I I come up with a concept, and the hardest part is just putting down the bones. So you're you sit down, you know, at an empty page, and you just are trying to come up with a one page of what this book is about, and then from that, I usually get a the first part. Like maybe if I, I break it into three three acts, I get the first act outlined, and then I'll start writing. And once I finish that first act, I know I'm going to throw it all away. But before I do that, I go back and I outline the entire book, and that's never going to stick. You know, that's never going to be there throughout the end. But it, it does give me a blueprint of yeah. of where I'm going, and it helps me once I get that first act done, which I'm going to ultimately throw away. I can then write it a little bit faster and at least have a better idea about where the story's going. What about you? How do, how do you, how did you write this book? You know, my, again, my kind of insecurities are that I have the most inefficient process in the universe, but, but it, it does, it starts. So I, I, I write every day, which is advice that I was given from other writers. And sometimes that means that I sit down and write complete garbage and other days maybe something that's passable in a few more drafts. So I, I tend to not stop and, and reflect too deeply on what the larger intentions of certain things are. They'll just things will start to coalesce and I'll realize like, oh, okay, I think I'm I think this is gonna be a book. Um, and so, you know, with my vanishing twin it started with these kind of character explorations that were really just kind of writing exercises that then coalesced around this idea. And then from there, um, you know, I also am envious of people that that have a, that see a distinction between writing and rewriting. Because to me, it's all the same thing. You're, you know what I mean? You're just you start putting down words or the bones, like you said, and and you know you're coming right back to them that they're not done and they're not right. So it's just a series of passes and passes, and get you know blowing it up bigger, and then event, and then starting to cut away and trying to shape it, craft it, and I even think. Yeah. That the last pass that I took at it before, you know, right before publication, I think I took another 10, 15 pages out of it. <laughs> so it's just the first. Uh, kind of, but I also kind of like it. I, I like how it it things it brings things more and more into focus. It's mm-hmm. art, but I really love how how a scene becomes more like what you're trying to do by simply extracting these things that that you just don't need that you know, that, that were so important to you in the first draft and you were clear was the essence of the whole thing. 
And then even in the context of all that as well, I remember probably like six months after my Vanishing Twin had published, I found this like crumpled up napkin in the bottom of my bag that I had clearly had to stop and write on. And I looked at it and then that was like two sentences that verbatim wound up in the book. So I don't know how the hell <laughs> this stuff works, you know? <laughs> I hear you. Are you, now, do you think about or approach, I really love, you mentioned the McSweeney stuff that you wrote and some of the, you, you've got some of your other short form stuff that you wrote on your website. I love the McSweeney stuff and envy the clarity of what you achieved with those pieces. Do you approach the, the short form stuff differently than the long form? You know, those, some of those are just... It's hard to say because in so many situations you fail, but I think in with the McSweeney stuff, it's, I, I mean, there's so many great writers there that I guess my approach, I don't want anybody to think this is the only way, but for me, it's if the idea comes into my head and I can get it on a page in one hour, it's good. But then that one hour, once it's down the page, it's going to take me a week to tinker with it. And that's like, you know, a couple hours a day sometimes some of those pieces have taken me a few hours. Some of those pieces have taken me two weeks. And even some of the ones that have been rejected for whatever reason, the editor there is great. He has a great eye for this stuff. And he's very, very good at, at seeing what is gonna what is funny. So when they're rejected, it really is. There's something in there. Once they're rejected and they're, they, I, I read them that last time, I know immediately what's wrong with them. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny though. Not until you get that feedback, though, right? Like, not, and sometimes as soon as you hit send on the email, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I think in those it's slightly different because there's not as much at, at stake when when you've written, you know, a long book like the, Vanish, the Vanishing Twin. You've spent, you know, a good chunk of your life on it, so you don't have you have much more at stake. So you've put much more time into it. Yeah. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about is—is is I know that you're you're a filmmaker as well. Have you ever tried to take uh, one of your one of your novels and, and turn that into a script? I haven't. I strangely kind of did the the. Well, no, I guess that's right. So the I, I, the first film I made was a very low budget film called This Is a Business, and that was a that was something. It didn't even get to the point of it being really a a full-on novel, but it was a piece of prose that I had been writing and at a certain point was discussing it with my brother and we were like, well, maybe that's a movie. And then we kind of adapted that and went from there. You know, I did, I made, This is a Business was my first feature film. My second was uh, called Half Dragon Sanchez. And they were both films that played festivals around the US and, and in Europe and got some small distribution deals. But you know, making a movie is like, at least on the scale that I was making them, which were indie films, because what I wanted to do was, a, you know, a different type of film. It, it takes a good three years, three, four years out of your life. And, and it's a it's a battle. And so when I finished the second feature film, uh, I kind of was, I, I told myself, I'm not going to make another one until I absolutely feel the need to make another one. And that's where also where I really kind of started focusing more on on writing prose or novels or, you know, other short pieces and whatnot. Yeah. And that's been a much more kind of fills me up as opposed to depletes me type of creativity. 
And so I've really kind of focused there. So I'm, I've been told, I've gotten the feedback for both my first novel, Sutterfeld, You're Not a Hero, and my second novel, My Vanishing Twin, that they both have cinematic qualities and people are, you know, can see them as movies. But I've never stopped to kind of think about what that transition would look like. Although I think it would be fun to do at, at a certain point, definitely. Do you? Yeah. I yeah. feel like uh, My Vanishing Twin, as I'm reading it, it's like a movie to me. Yeah, which is interesting to me. I I, I, try, I ponder sometimes what those characteristics are that do that. I think that there's there's something in. Um, I, I think I'm fascinated by how through observation we pick up on subtext or certain things that people do. How they how their behaviors or their actions communicate things, and I think that that's inherently rooted in the visual nature of watching a movie. And so I think that finds its way into the prose, I guess. But I also think on the flip side, I don't think of myself as a, as a deeply visual writer in the sense that I, I, don't, I don't really get engaged with books typically that spend a lot of time describing the details or the nuances of the physical space or the environments. I'm much more keyed into character. So I've always thought, I think of those types of books as typically being more cinematic, but, um, but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I, once I got it in my head, who was playing Walter Brom, I couldn't get it out, but it's yeah. Paul Giamatti. So as I'm reading the book be and, I'm, and, he's, <laughs> and he's playing Walter Brom, it's, I'm just, that's, he's, he's a character, he's a, he's an actor who I always find really entertaining and, and hilarious and everything he does. So he's kind of making it funnier. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that'd be great. And and I, some people have also mentioned like, and I don't know that I see this exactly, but have mentioned uh, like uh, Charlie Kaufman parallels and things like that. Oh, yeah. uh, but I, I don't know. Now with Therapy Mammals though, is it fair for me to say that the reference points that were coming to mind, I was thinking of it as, and I never do this by the way, I'm never like, that's a, this meets this type of thing. I'm like terrible at that. But Joseph Heller's Something Happened and combining it with sort of like a, an American Psycho, Brett Easton Ellis type of thing. Are those fair touch points? Yeah, no. absolutely. I mean, maybe not the Something Happened, but I, I used to have – and this is still my favorite book of all time, Catch-22, is I, I used to carry I'm this book good. with me everywhere. I, I'm sorry. Can we pause for a moment? That is the one of the single greatest books in the history of the world as, as far as I'm concerned. The, absolutely. The way in which, and again, to me, this is where that humor comes into play. No other book really uses humor in such a sophisticated narrative and literary way. It is unbelievable what that book does. Sorry, I'll step off my... my oh, uh, no, no. I, I completely agree with that. But yes, absolutely. The um, American Psycho, I was, I had read that book you know, a year before I, I had worked on this, but trying to get the absurdity of this character and the, the situation he found him in, it, it sort of was like the same thing with, with American Psycho because a lot of people that read that book just thought it was hilarious. They thought American Psycho was a hilarious book. Yeah. And if you read it, like if you ever have a chance to sit down and read American Psycho again, it's if you start like laughing at one thing in the beginning, you'll just you'll find the whole thing implausible and, and hilarious. At yeah. least that was that was what how it worked for me. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. Definitely um, interesting. Yes, and I something happened for me. I'm not as big a fan of it as a book, but I I'm with you with the. the I, I know I'm repeating myself, but just the 
I, I, Catch-22 is a book that I just keep coming back to, and I just kind of can't get over how exactly that happened. Do you also look at or feel influenced by Vonnegut at all? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, I, I'm actually one of the books that I, one of the books I'm I'm working on now is it's about aliens actually that are they're 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 living here to to siphon our our stress. It's their main energy source <laughs> is our is our angst, our stress. Well, and I'm I'm going back to his some of his Trelfadorians and all and the way that he kind of worked that into a bunch of his novels. Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds awesome. And then there's also kind of a stream in the book as well, which kind of plays with and I can't remember. I think the site was called like Lust Fizzle. Was that what it was? Yes, it's yes. like Buzzfeed kind of, right? Yeah, and so is that also? So it seemed like there's kind of a fascination with what writing and communication and literature becomes in kind of an online format or in that kind of sensationalistic capacity is that do you follow stuff like that is it is it of interest to you in that way do you think about what becomes of literature as it becomes clickbait yeah i think so i'm not sure how to expand on that though but yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense fair enough fair enough (laughs) (laughs) so what what are you what are you working on now what's your what are you into the right now a couple things. So trying to hopefully pull together what I or this late, late draft of what I hope will be my third novel, which is uh, a little bit different for me about a, a young girl with a overactive imagination who kind of gets pulled into this metaphysical experiment to pit the greatest joys in the world against the worst sorrows in the world to try to finally force one or the other to win or triumph. Um, <laughs> And now is this would this be would would you consider this uh, like an adult novel like your other two or is this going to be a different genre? Yeah, no, it's a, I think of it as a yeah a literary fiction, an adult book, but it has a protagonist who's like an eleven year old girl. Oh, okay, uh, and cool. it, I think it's you know exploring themes of not dissimilar from therapy mammals in some ways, but you know caring for, uh, of, of being a parent, of caring for a child, of that type of vulnerability that comes with, you know, riding the ride of investing in things and loving things and caring about things. And I think it's about that. And then uh, trying to work, and then, you know, a good part of the way through what'll, again, hopefully turn into the fourth book, but we'll, we'll, we'll see about that. And then, you know, busting out kind of shorter form things as well. I, I think the gratification of being able to just kind of as you said, you know, work on something for a couple days, see what it becomes, invest a little more time in it to shape it. It's more finite, which I think grounds me when I'm kind of lost in the larger, you know, page counts and, and structures or whatever of, of novels. What about you? What are you doing? Working on the novel, always working on some, um, you know, some TV and, and film pilots and mm-hmm. scripts and all that thing. But, you know, it's... Mostly day to day, like you said earlier, it's it's really just getting up and, and trying to put in a few hours early in the morning before anybody's up and around and before you got to go to work. No, absolutely. Well, um, awesome talking to you, man. And um, it was great talking to you too, Tom. And I yeah. I'm, I loved your book. Thanks. Likewise, and uh, be keeping track of the stuff you're you're doing and keeping track of your website and other short form stuff coming up. So honestly, a pleasure talking to you. You too, Tom.